This is Amita Switlow, QSO VSO Outreach Officer for Western Canada, Western United States. The wonderful part of my job is to talk to people, our alumni. And today we have a very important alumni. She may not think so, but I think she's pretty special. Being one of the group of 15, the first that sent, were sent out. Helen, you were just telling us about your assignment and the school that you were in. Well, my husband and I were both um, assigned to a boarding school to be teachers. Um, he was trained as a mechanical engineer, and, and I was trained as a sort of languages person, <laughs> but neither of us had any teacher training. We had, um, uh, we, our training program in CUSA was really catch-as-catch-can because we had no idea what we were doing. Uh, the 15 of us were all involved, more or less, in our own training. And we did bizarre things like learn midwifery, for example. And I mean, who, we had no idea what to expect when we were going on these assignments. But um, I was put in teaching English at, at this boarding school, which, of course, was easy because I had majored in English. But uh, a few weeks into my, um, my teaching at the school, the principal called me into his office and said, we've just lost our history teacher. As of tomorrow, you're teaching British history. So it was up burning the midnight oil, trying to keep three jumps ahead of the students and uh, swatting up as much British history as I possibly could. And I kind of ran my course like People magazine. I just dealt with all the personalities and tried to make it as dramatic as possible and somehow bumbled through it. And then... Um, uh, the Chinese school, uh, which uh, was down the road a little bit, uh, heard that we were in town, and they had never had native English speakers at their school. They were all Chinese medium on this school. And these students were having a very hard time getting an overseas scholarship because preference was given to the native students. So a native student would say maybe a 70% average would get an overseas scholarship. Uh, whereas a Chinese student with a 90% average might not. They had, because they didn't have the English. So they persuaded my husband and I to go down to the school where I would be working with uh, teaching English as a second language. And my husband was working with what they called a transition class, teaching them maths and sciences, because they had already had a little bit of English. And uh, this was really quite a pioneer experience because they had no textbooks. There was nothing at all to work with. I had to make up my own textbooks. I had to figure out what I was going to teach them. I had um, conversation classes with 50 students to try and teach them conversation. But it was probably the most rewarding part of my period there because uh, I've made friendships there in the, with those Chinese students that have gone on to this day. Really? Actually, three of my former students live in Vancouver now, and we, we have kept in touch. And, one of them has become quite a wealthy uh, and important person in the real estate industry in Vancouver. Well, you know, we must invite them to our uh, event in Vancouver. That would make so much sense because, uh, as, as you very well know from our fir your first experience, the partners in the field, the community relations continue on. And that's a very long relationship to have continued. So you taught... Him, English. Yes. <laughs> well, we'll find out what his name is later. I'm sure everybody's curious. <laughs> um, so, you're, how are you living when you're there? Where are you living? What kind of housing did you have? Well, since we were the first of our kind, 
uh, and as I said uh, uh, before to you, that um, we were there even before the Peace Corps was in the field. Uh, they really didn't know what to do with us. So they they had some empty houses, and they, they put us in this um, amazing house that was on, I think it was 10-foot stilts. Uh, and we we lived about um, oh, a short distance from the school, so we would walk to to school uh, with the students. Uh, later on, when we were teaching at the Chinese school, it was a bit further down the road, so we bought bicycles and we would bicycle to school. But it it was um, very basic living, and we in those days our monthly allowance was eighty dollars. That was for our food. They gave us a house, but we. We had $80 for all of our expenses. And so this, there was no shopping in the, the expatriate uh, uh, grocery store. We shopped in the market. We, I had to learn Malay very quickly okay. because there was almost no English spoken when you got outside of you know, a very small little community of teachers. And did you learn some local recipes? Oh, yes. Yeah, that was very interesting because, of course, I didn't think we had a penny to spare, so I was going to do all the housework and teach at the same time. And we learned very, very quickly that you had to change the sheets every day because of the, the humidity in Sarawak being right on the equator. Oh. So trying to wash sheets by hand in a bathtub and hang them up was just got to be too much. And then, lo and behold, this wonderful woman showed up on her doorstep, and she had lost her home, and she needed a place to live, and she was desperate for work. And we said, well, we can't pay you very much because we don't have very much. So I don't remember what we paid her, $10 or something, and she was going to come and do the laundry for us. Well, she moved in and became part of our lives, and she became our dearest friend in, in Sarawak, kind of an... Uh, a mother, uh, mother figure in our lives, and she taught me how to cook all the wonderful Malay dishes. And mm. I, my Chinese friends taught me the Chinese dishes. Oh, you must be amazing! A good cook then, because <laughs> Malay food is delicious. Oh, it's wonderful! It's yes. a lovely combination of Chinese, Indian. Yes, mm. absolutely. So, are you still in touch with her today? Alas, she died a few years ago. Oh. But I did, I did go back to Borneo a couple of times, and I did see her again. It was and very moving. So you were there one year? We were there about a year and a half approximately because we had our contracts in those days were only one year. And some of the, cute, the first group went back after the year. But a number of us opted to stay on a bit longer. And so Clint and I, we extended our contracts for another year. But um, unfortunately, partway through that year, the Borneo Rebellion broke out. This was, mm -hmm. a, this was a, an Indian... Uh, Indonesian communist-inspired rebellion, and um, quite, it was quite an uprising, and they brought in Gurkhas, and the Gurkhas occupied the school we were in, and it went on for quite a number of months, but the, all classes were ended, all schools were closed, so we, um, we had to leave, we had no choice but to leave. And, but instead of flying back home, we, took, we cashed in our airline tickets, <laughs> and we took a year coming overland, and had amazing adventures because we went to Vietnam and the war was just accelerating in Vietnam at that point. Wow. This was, this was 63, so we had some amazing adventures over the year. And stopped off in India to see some of our other CUSO volunteers. Um, so the family, the connection of this CUSO or C, it's C-O-V or C-V-O? C-O-V. C-O-V. So let's say, what did it say? Canadian Overseas Volunteers. 
Canadian overseas volunteers. So the family began then. You, you managed to connect with each other and, and see each other on the way home. So when you got home, I can imagine when people first talked to you, as we were just talking today, um, it would be like a question, how was your holiday? Oh. <laughs> Absolutely inconceivable that they could understand. I mean, Sarawak then was a very, very simple country. I mean, it was still a, it was still British. This was before Malaysia. And ah. so it was, it was very, very, very little changed from the days of the White Rajas. And the town we lived in was very basic, you know, with the open gutters and, and everything, the little marketplace. Uh, the only entertainment in town was a, a, a theater that showed camp Cantonese opera. Wow. And we had no luxury goods whatsoever. So when I came back and I had to buy some toothpaste, I remember going into one of the drugstores and there were about a hundred different toothpastes. And I literally had culture shock. I, I just was paralyzed and I started crying. I didn't know how to, it was just so shocking coming back from living this extraordinarily simple existence where I lived in flip-flops and I had three dresses that I changed. And that was, and really um, so far removed from Toronto, even in 1961, that coming back was an enormous adjustment. We didn't have any culture shock going while we were in the country. It was coming back that it really hit us between the eyes. And how did that, that change, how did that experience change your outlook on the world? Well, I think, as I've said many times, we have a way of looking at life based on the way we have been raised, our cultural background, and so on. And we assume that this is the, the way everyone looks at life. But when you live for a period of time and work and make very dear friends with people who live with entirely different points of view, they don't look at the world the same way as you do. And you realize there are many different ways of looking at life and experience. And it creates, whether you want it or not, an open-mindedness that you can carry with you for the rest of your life. And it's very, I think it's a very wonderful gift that we got from CUSO. I mean, I found, I was, the, the people in the jungle, which we visited many times because our students uh, would go home on, on vacations and we went with them. I mean, these were, this was a day where the women still had the very long pendulous earrings that went down oh. to their stomachs, you know, the long, all, you know, the multitude of earrings, and they were tattooed, the teeth were filed, uh, the women just wore sarongs. And I would be sitting on the balcony at night with these women, you know, chopping tobacco or winnowing rice or something, and we'd be talking about the very same things, you know, the problems you have with your husband, you know, you know, housework, all these basic domestic things that women all over the world talk about. And you realize that you're really not that much different. You may look different, but very different, but you're very, you're inside you're very much the same kind of people. And I think it's, um, when Clint and I got back to Canada, we had, our house was like an international house. We had people living with us from every country you can imagine, staying over for long periods of time. Former students would come and live with us. And my two sons grew up in this kind of environment. And I think it affected them very deeply. I mean, my son now lives over in Europe and doesn't speak English most of the time. So it's, they they've have an openness, open-mindedness, which I think was a legacy from that original CUSO experience. 
You know, I, I, I totally agree. Every, every home that I've been to for, uh, uh, from our alumni, I've seen this open-mindedness. I can feel it. I see it. I look at their homes. I see all the different cultures. But I also see a sense of simplicity because there's a, there's, there's a sense of there's, we have excess here. And when you mentioned the hundred toothpastes, that's um, a, a, a real visual picture of no toothpaste, a hundred toothpaste, of how much abundance, uh, the abundance in our lives. Excess, excess. Excess, yes, You're absolutely excess. right. And I think it, it, it allows you, and we all forget, of course, we get caught up in certain things and certain possessions. But I think when you step back and you start thinking about what is really, really important in life, and I think it's the people. Now, I mentioned this, this ama that we had that came in to do the laundry. Um, Isa was, she was the finest person I think I've ever met. She was the dearest, sweetest woman. When she found out my husband and I were separating, she sat apparently holding our picture and crying for three days. I mean, she, we, there was such a closeness there uh, of, for this woman who was so different. And um, we met so many people like her that, um, you know, uh, you realize that's what's important, those friendships, those, those close relationships that you build throughout life. And they are what sustain you. You can have all the possessions you want, but they don't give you any sustenance. It's the people that give you the sustenance. I really feel that in the future that we'll see more volunteers come from the south to the north to help us continue that tradition of the importance of people, family, culture, etc. Because we tend to forget those bonds and those those things nowadays. Yep, you're absolutely right. And I think one interesting small example of that is my son went over to live in the Czech Republic in 1990, just after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the, of the uh, Russian Empire. And he, at that point, uh, the Czechs had been under Russian domination for 45 years. And because they were so oppressed, they learned to ha have this underground kind of life. They helped one another. They supported one another. Uh, and they were very close. You could, you know, it was us against them. And then fast forward about five years down the road when they're all competing to have cars and televisions and, and competing in business. And that whole beautiful relationship that existed ironically during the communist empire was all falling apart and I think uh, that was very sad because it's people that give you the support not not things that's wonderful I want to go back all the way to the start and I want you to list some names of people that you recall from those early days with uh, COV the COV people? Yes. Well, f first and foremost, Keith Spicer. And Keith has been a lifelong friend of mine, a very, very dear friend. And he, if it hadn't been for Keith, there would be no CUSO. It was his, his idea. It came out of his work. And it was his determination to do this while he's, meanwhile, trying to type his, his PhD thesis, which he got me to type at 2 in the morning. I'm typing this wretched thesis <laughs> and having to get up, you know, to go to work the following morning because I had a job all this time. But he, um, he maintained, uh, uh, well, the first year he kept us going. And then he turned the work over to a man called Ozzy Schmidt. 
And Ozzy was really, Ozzy, very methodical, another engineer, uh, but he was the one that kept solving solving all the problems we ran into in the field. He was our, our liaison while we were over for the first two or three years. And he did a very important role in CUSO. And I don't think he, he has ever been um, uh, acknowledged as okay. much as he, he should have been. Okay. Um, another early person, well, Louis Perenbaum was very involved, but I didn't have much to do with Louis Perenbaum, so someone, someone else might be able to uh, talk about his role. I think the Vancouver people might be able yes. to talk and, about and his, his role. Yes, and his widow Nancy was in India. Yes. So, yes, that would Nancy Garrett, mm -hmm. that would be. Mm -hmm. So, Lewis and any more? Well, um, Suzanne Johnson was another very, she manned the, the CUSO office for many years, and Suzanne was mother, uh, confessor, uh, office manager, she was everything. She was our, she was our home connection. And I, I did interviewing for CUSA for about 10 years, so I worked very closely with Suzanne. Suzanne is interesting because she had three absolutely amazing children, one of whom you may have heard of, Molly Johnson. Oh. Molly, Molly is very well known now. She's the Canadian Billie Holiday, as they often call her. Yes. Oh, wow, that's fantastic. So do you know whether Suzanne lives in Ontario? Or? She lives in, I, well, I last... Oh, no, I think she's moved back to Toronto, but she was in Ottawa. Um, Anne Hume would know where Suzanne is. Now, Anne was in my group as well. Okay. Um, she was in the first, she went to India. Right. And Anne has a connection with Suzanne. Anne Hume. Hmm? Do you remember any more names of some of those 15? Oh, absolutely. Go Bill for it. Bill McQuinney. Oh, Bill Big Ma Bill. Oh, I met him, I think. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yes, Bill was in Salon. Okay. And he was working on, in a banking position. I can't remember what his responsibility was. But when, I think it was in the, sometimes before at the end of his term, the organization started running into difficulties and they decided they needed somebody back to go back home. And Bill oh. went back and he's, he looked after CUSO. He later went on to become director of CETA. Bill unfortunately had a heart attack a few years ago and has passed away. We shall miss him. Yes. And then um, there was um, Dale Wilson. Or not Dale Wilson. Dale uh, Posgate, sorry. Dale Posgate? Yes. He lived over on uh, Vancouver Island for quite a long time, but I've lost ha touch with Dale. I'm not sure where he is now. Okay. And, oh, we can't forget Huguette Legere. Huguette was from Quebec. She was a doctor. Oh. And um, she was about five foot nothing and very tiny. And um, she went on to India, did a very fine job uh, while she was, excuse me, over in India. Wonderful. And then, then there was um, Buffy Carruthers. What lovely names. Mm -hmm. Buffy Carruthers, okay. Mm. And where did... And Buffy was a teacher. She was up, um, she was up in... Uh, I think she was in Benares, I think, in India. Okay. And uh, with Steve Wilcombe. Steve has gone on to quite uh, a prominent career since he got back in international relations. He's had many very, very important international jobs. Steve was also in India. Alright. And, um, of course, John Wilcox, who was, has a background in agriculture. He was also in India. Who now lives on Salt Spring? Yes. 
and uh, there was Greta Dahl, D-A-H-L. Greta Dahl. Yes, Greta went on to, was Gre Greta was in uh, Ceylon as well, or Sri Lanka as well. Wow. And, and, and then there was John Andrews, he was an engineer. He was, br he was actually from England originally, but had, been, had gone to U of T, and he went on to Sri Lanka as well. Hmm. And uh, who else? We, who am I missing? Uh, Sally Silverton? Sylvia Silverton, sorry. Sylvia Silverton. Mm -hmm. right. And Sylvia was a, a, she was an, a nurse, I believe. Right. I'm forgetting there now. And also in India. Uh, Sally Bambridge. Yeah, Sally was, um, she was a um, very, very clever lady. And uh, also I think she went, she was working in um, India. I think teaching as well, if I remember correctly. <laughs> Sylvia, um, or, or Sally went on to marry um, uh, someone from India and has and worked in, um, has been living in Halifax, I believe, oh, for okay. many, many years. Maybe she's in touch with our Halifax office then. Yes, yes. And who am I missing? I'm missing a couple. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Nine, ten, eleven. Your memory is stunning. Yeah, You're almost there. Yeah. Clen, Clen Waldridge, of course, my ex-husband. Clen has. Uh, Clen was when he came back. Um, he went back to graduate school, mm -hmm. and he um, got a job working with the Ontario Crippled Children's Centre. He subsequently doing research and, and design, and then went on to become the director of the unit. And he left there to go and live up in um, up in Bracebridge, where he um, did another degree in uh, psychology and has worked in counseling for many many years up there. Wow. Okay. And then there's me. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and Helen, what last name do you? Oh, I was I was under, I was in Cuso as Woldridge, but okay. I now use my maiden name, which is Zakowski. Okay. Right. We're almost there. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen. Ed Anken is another one. Ed A I E N K I N. E N K I N. That's mm -hmm. interesting. All right. And Ed um, Ed was our one tragedy because he he had um had uh Problems, psychiatric problems, which he didn't disclose in the interviews. No, oh. It didn't come up. And he just went, um, he had a very serious breakdown in India okay. and had to be sent back. And he subsequently, he died when he was quite young. Oh. So, Ed, we remember you. Yeah. And um, uh, Dick Hamilton. Dick Hamilton, I've heard this name. Yeah. The Dick, Dick was in India. He came back, and he has had many very prominent positions. I think the last I heard of me was with World Bank. Ah, that's it. That's mm -hmm. it. I've heard that. So we have now the list of the the first fifteen, mm -hmm. and this predis uh, uh, it's before CEDA, uh, before uh, Peace Corps. Um, these these wonderful people were out there as some African countries were becoming independent, the world was changing, and the world has definitely changed today. I just wanted to know, what's your, been your career after that? Well, I got back and I, um, 
<clears throat> I started uh, doing a little freelance writing, okay. but I was pregnant at the time, so I, my first, it was just, it, I, I took about a year or so off too with my son. But um, I then went back to, back to school because I, I always wanted to get involved in film and television. All right. That was so uh, I had a degree, but they just coincidentally at that time Ryerson in Toronto uh, had a special program for university graduates in television to produce to teach us to become producer directors, and I took this course and enjoyed it so much, uh, particularly the film aspect of it, that I got to make up a special program for myself for a whole year in film doing much the same thing. It was strictly hands-on. There was no academic work. We, would, we, learned, we learned every aspect of, first of all, television making and then of filmmaking. Um, I subsequently got a job uh, working at York University as a producer-director and uh, spent about five years there, very wonderful years there, producing all sorts of really interesting programming for the university and for CBC as well. We did stuff for them. And while I was in working there, um, I met three other fellows who were part of the program, part of, worked in, uh, more or less uh, with the unit I was with. And um, we formed a company, a, fr a freelance company. At the time, we, uh, this is very interesting, at the time we were the same size as Atlantis and Alliance. Oh my goodness! <laughs> they were our competitors. <laughs> oh my God! <laughs> but um, we, the, the company, unfortunately, we, we were not very good businessmen. Uh, we made some good films and we produced for a lot of CBC, CTV, a lot of places like that. Um, but we weren't very good businessmen, so we went our own ways. And then I started, um, one of my partners uh, worked with a series called Science International. And uh, that was a, a new show that had started with Global, which was also brand new at the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, he hired me on as the head writer for the show. So I did a number of years with them writing science shows. And then got totally seduced by um, writing for television and I, um, entertainment television. And I started writing for a comedian called David Steinberg mm -hmm. and was um, hired by them to go to work in Los Angeles. Unfortunately, there was a family tragedy. My dad died so long. Um, I stayed in Vancouver and um, started freelance writing there. Went down, uh, I stayed with my mom for about a year and a half and then went down to California. I edited a magazine for six years down there in California and then came back and spent a number of years with the CBC doing radio drama, which I totally loved as well as some television work and some films as well. I'm expecting that you will write some more and uh, we'll be looking forward to seeing what you're going to write next. I've heard a little rumor that you're going to do something special <laughs> and I look forward to it. In go as a writer, a freelance writer, when you look back and you think about the way you communicated your story at that time, do you have any regrets about writing or lack of writing? I, rem I heard that you gave an ad advice to someone about keeping a journal. Oh, yeah. Well, th this, this was the irony because I kept a journal, a daily journal, uh, from the moment we left Sarawak 
for that entire year we were traveling through some amazing countries and seeing things like Angkor Wat where there was nobody there. This was before Angkor Wat was even on the tourist trail. Wow. And we saw the temples when they were still covered with the trees and uh, we saw some amazing things. So I kept this daily journal which I have and it's, it's about 20 volumes I think that I, that I have which will go to my son one day. But um, so I, and I thought, I kicked myself, why didn't I do that during my CUSO experience? Because we had equally exciting adventures. Okay. And I mean, I've, I've jotted some of them down over the years, but um, I think any, and now of course we have technology, which is wonderful, the blogs, everything. So I think it's a lot easier. It was just a little bit more difficult in those days, coming home from a, you know, a day of work and sitting down and keeping a journal. Well, I must say you make good cookies because I've been <laughs> munching on them during this interview and having your wonderful iced tea in your beautiful home near Colmox on a very hot summer day on the 28th of July, 2009. Our 50th anniversary is coming in 2011. We expect to see you in Ottawa or British Columbia to help celebrate our 50th Helen. Thank you so much for serving us and helping to start a tradition that continues to today with over 12,000 Canadians that have served overseas. Thanks, Helen. Thank you, Amita. That was...